This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good evening, everybody. Welcome uh, to this Resolution Foundation event. I'm Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Foundation. And the event we're holding tonight is part of uh, the Foundation's most ambitious project ever, the Economy 2030 inquiry, which is a two and a half year deep dive into the status quo, that's less good, of the UK economy and the future, which hopefully will be significantly better of what it should be. What does a plausible economic strategy for the UK uh, look like? Now, that's a slightly scary project, which is why we've done it jointly with the London School for Economics and the Nuffield um, Foundation and with some brilliant commissioners who've actually been directing that work over the last two years, including Manoush Shafiq, Clive Cowdery, our own founder, Francis O'Grady and Carolyn Fairburn, the Director General and the General Secretary of the TUC and the CBI, Nick Stern and Adam Toos, and Danny Roderick, who is the Professor of International Political Economy at Harvard University, as I say, one of our um, commissioners. He's the man who spent time encouraging us all to focus on economic and industrial strategies before they were uh, popular. They're not popular everywhere now, but still, they're more popular now than they were a decade ago. And he's made us all think differently about a whole range of issues from globalisation to inclusive growth, and unusually spent time with work spanning developing and developed economies. We don't even manage developed economies, we just do Britain here. So he covers significantly more of the globe. The, um, so we're very grateful to him for giving us all that time over the last two and a half years, giving us lots of insights. There's been 60 papers, I'm sure he's read every single one uh, of them. And now on top of that, I'm grateful because he's here to uh, give us a lecture on the central theme of the inquiry, or one of the central themes of the inquiry, which is what does it take to build a good jobs economy? So one of the big themes of, of the inquiry is not will it have this economic strategy, it will make you rich, what kind of jobs will it create as a side product, but instead how does the strategy build into it the creation of a high volume of good jobs and that's one of Danny's main contributions to the inquiry. So we're going to hear about that today. The, um, Danny's going to give us about a 30 minute lecture and then we'll have time for a conversation and a discussion. If you're in the room and you've still got sufficiently developed social skills, then you can ask your questions uh, using your voice. So put your hand up. If you're online and whether or not you have good social skills, you can go onto Slido and it's hashtag good jobs to ask your questions and we'll bring those up as we go through the discussion. So that is the plan um, for this evening. Danny, thank you for everything over the last two years and thank you for your time tonight. Over to you to tell us how we're going to get this good job economy. Um, thank you. Thank you, Torsten, and to the Resolution Foundation for having me here. Thank you for, for coming and uh, to all of those online who are, who are listening and, and watching. Um, so Torsten promised more than what I'm going to <laughs> deliver. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you would have guessed that. Uh, I don't know how to create a good jobs economy. In fact, um, I feel... Um, that this is something that is, is, is relatively unprecedented given um, the changes in technology and the world economy. I think it's, it's, there are not examples we can draw on. And the kind of direction that I'm going to try to push you towards is really something that I'm drawn to, not because there's anything particularly attractive about this orientation, but because of a process of elimination. 
that is sort of you know ruling ruling out much easier, much more attractive and tried and tested um, kind of strategies of the past. So that that is really a kind of a process of elimination that gets me to a point to say, okay, you know, we need to have this kind of a focus that's going to have all kinds of difficult and untested um, uh, implications for policy. And, uh, and, it does, and, the, and it doesn't look like anything that, that we're really um, doing, including um, what's happening in the United States, and I'll, I'll talk about that um, also. So um, I, I don't want to bore you with a lot of stuff that you know. Um, this is, um, oh, here. So if I hold this like this, okay, um, that, you know, Britain is suffering from uh, a, a kind of a, pro, uh, a productivity problem in the aggregate. Um, uh, but the part of it that I'm mostly concerned about is in terms of what it means for uh, the quality of jobs for um, the middle and lower middle classes. Um, uh, if you look at the, the last 40, 45 year period, um, those kinds of jobs have tended to do not so well um, in uh, most advanced uh, economies, uh, uh, definitely in the United States, but also um, to some extent uh, in the UK. That's important because if you want to build middle class societies, um, that sort of having jobs not just for the most skilled, but also for the uh, intermediate skill people in, in, in your economy uh, is extremely important. Um, a, a dimension uh, in, the, uh, in the UK which sort of overlaps but is not exactly one and the same in terms of this overall um, uh, uh, inequalities of economic opportunity and jobs is the kind of very high levels of regional inequality uh, in, in, um, in, in the um, uh, in the UK, so that outside London and the Southeast, uh, the problem of good jobs is also the problem of scarcity of good jobs in, in, in many other parts uh, of, of the UK, in, in other uh, uh, cities where productivity has been, has been um, lagging. Um, so if we're talking about a prosperity that's not going to be limited to a relatively few people, if it's a kind of a, an enhancement in productivity that we will hope it will trickle, trickle down, but in reality may not. Um, a, 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 so an economy that emphasizes inclusive prosperity is going to require a focus that is not just productivity, uh, but also uh, more productive jobs for uh, the bulk of the labor uh, force as well. Um, and that requires us really to address inequality um, uh, in, in, in where it's created, in, in, in terms of you know, what kind of, of, of jobs are, are, are created, uh, what kind of skills people have. Um, and uh, since my emphasis is, is on good jobs, I should also say, you know, um, make clear that even though pay, uh, is uh, a very big part of it. Um, it's not the only thing, and I think sort of you know we all know that you know, jobs matter a lot more than simply the income. It sort of it, it in many ways defines us who we are, and having jobs that that not only pay well but in, in, entail a certain amount of dignity, autonomy, uh, ability to progress and develop, and so forth is is all part of of um, of, of the good jobs story. So um, I, I'm not aware of any of these indices for the UK, and there's probably are some, but in the United States there's a, a wide variety of um, um, uh, 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 quantitative indicators that have been developed um, that, that sort of do this. Um, some of them uh, are based on 
uh, attitudinal surveys and, and surveying workers and asking them what do they care for. And of course, always pay is a big part, but they care a lot about flexibility, automation, um, how they treat it on the job as well. Uh, other um, uh, um, measures are based on sort of objective indicators of jobs, and the OECD actually has a, a cross-country database. I assume Britain is actually in, include, is included on that. Um, that has statistical indicators of earnings, labor market security, and the quality of the working working environment. Um, so, this this, in other words, I mean, this, the notion of a of a good job could be quantified and made more precise. And in fact, you know, one element of emphasizing good jobs would be to have indicators that you can actually track. Um, and I think uh, investing in that is obviously part of this. So um, now. What is the good job uh, industrial policy uh, connection? Um, I think a lot of the discussion on good jobs uh, tends to focus on a number of uh, dimensions where, um, where um, I, I think the, the, the kind of gains that we can make are sort of limited. Um, probably the first thing that people focus on when we talk about good jobs is focusing on the supply side of labor market is the quality of skills and training and education. So, you know, so people want good jobs, they need to have better skills they need in order to access better labor markets. Um, a second level might be to say, well, we need to have, you know, regulation standards. Um, and, 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 um, um, and the third might be to say, well, let's improve the bargaining power of workers uh, through unions or, or um, sectoral uh, uh, bargaining and things like that. And, and a final line of argument, which you hear probably a lot more in the US than I imagine it's in the UK, is the argument that it's actually it's in the interest of employers uh, to offer good jobs, uh, because by offering better jobs, you get more motivated employees that, that you know, quit less frequently, and therefore you reap the benefits of these you know, better jobs in actual, in actual productivity on the job, and therefore that's actually a profit-enhancing strategy. So if that was true, of course, you don't need to do you know, any sort of have any minimum wages or labor bargaining. In fact, the people who argue for that tend to be against unions because they, they sort of feel that it should be all businesses going doing this on their own for their for for the for the um, for um, uh, um, self-interested reasons. Now I think the reason that that these are sort of remedies that are limited um, is well first I mean our our, our number one two and three um, uh, you know remedy which is always training and and education well that's Yes, 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 but it's always, you know, it's, it's always a solution to the future, never really a solution um, to the short, short run. And I think, you know, my colleague at the Kennedy School, um, Ricardo Hausman, says that, you know, the, 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 the purpose of an economic strategy is to create jobs for the people you have, uh, not to, for the people you wish you had. Um, and, and, and so that's really about, you know, the, the fact that training um, uh, investment, education, skills, all of that. I, I'm not, I don't want to de-emphasize that at all because I think that's definitely uh, a key part of this, but it can't be the entire strategy. Um, uh, there is some evidence from um, work um, by um, uh, Stansbury and company 
uh, that suggests that, in fact, this sort of wide regional gaps in productivity persists even after you control for education in the UK. So again, even there, it's clear that even you know that may not be the, the uh, um, uh, solve the entire problem, suggesting that there is something also happening on the demand side of labor markets, that the, the productive ecosystems that create more productive jobs aren't in present uh, in the rest of, of the country. So it's not just going to be skills and education. And of course, we have these other counter arguments about how, you know, simply having higher minimum wages, you know, runs pretty clearly, pretty quickly into a kind of trade-off between creating jobs versus incumbents having a relatively high wage. And of course, France is a clear example of a country that has run into that kind of a trade-off with very high youth unemployment rates um, and high wages for those who do have wages. Um, and also for the, 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 high, the high road argument, I think it's clear that that might be true for some employers, but it's really not an, an, uh, an argument that, that holds um, sway for the entire labor market. Okay, so I think that all is again, but you know, this is my process of elimination. So it's saying, where is this, you know, taking us? Well, it has to be that if you want to help, be able to provide good jobs for the bulk of the labor force, it has to be by enhancing sort of productivity. That you know, you have to have more productive jobs for the workers uh, that you do have and are likely to have uh, in the short to medium term. Um, so, how do you do that? And I think this is where. Um, the industrial policy connection comes in because industrial policy is about increasing productivity. Um, that is by fostering innovation and structural change uh, towards more productive ag activities. Um, I'm not going to go into the long-standing debate about the efficacies of industrial policy. I'm happy to talk about it, but I, I would argue that even the economics profession is going through a kind of a... a, 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 a a, a, a change of attitudes towards industrial policy from, I would say, extreme hostility to less extreme hostility right now. Um, the, um, um, but, and here is again uh, the sort of the crux, in, or, the, or we hit another problem, which is that when we talk about sort of how we talk about industrial policy today, so I've talked to you how we, when we talk about good jobs and labor markets, how that cannot be the full story. But when we talk about industrial policy, that's also the, our current discussion is leaving important things out because uh, today the discussion about industrial policy or industrial strategy, certainly in the United States, but also gather in the UK, really focuses on things like manufacturing, on supply chains, on the green transition, on attaining global competitiveness, right? Um, and um, none of these actually have uh, good jobs at the center. Um, even though, for example, in the context of the CHIPS Act in the United States, that's also listed uh, as one of the objectives. But one of my points here is going to be, and in fact, there's one point I want you to take away from my presentation, is that good jobs is going to require its own industrial policy, that it cannot be tagged on. Uh, as an objective on existing uh, industrial policies, whether it is, uh, you know, advanced semiconductors and manufacturing, as in the case of chips, or it is um, the green transition. Um, uh, those are that that you cannot ki kill all the birds uh, with um, with one or two stones. That that and and right now, really, at least in the case of the United States, and I believe that's true also in the UK, we don't have a coherent policy that is targeting uh, green jobs, uh, uh, good jobs uh, directly. Um, so 
The reason that I think none of this is really, um, at, in the US, is really targeting good jobs fundamentally is because the bulk, bulk of the jobs of the future will not be uh, in manufacturing um, or in semiconductors. Um, the green transition itself is not a net job creator. Uh, it'll destroy a lot of jobs. Um, it'll create some jobs in other places. Uh, but that's not really on its own unless you make green jo uh, good jobs an objective in and of itself. It's, it doesn't uh, address the problem. Um, um, okay, uh, so this again uh, is, is, you know, you notice the, the process of, of manufacturing losing jobs. You know, UK has been one of the sharpest uh, the industri industrializing countries, but that's it's really common, even Germany has the industrializing employment terms. Uh, most of the jobs actually are in, in, in services, retail, uh, leisure and hospitality, and other um, uh, areas. And when you look at sort of which countries have actually in, in, you know, done well in manufacturing, um, you know, this is for a bunch of countries how they've done in terms of manufacturing output versus manufacturing employment. Um, even countries like um, oops, uh, South Korea, um, does this work? I'm not sure it works, but point, good <laughs> idea. So like take like South Korea, for example, is, is in, at constant prices, manufacturing share and value added has continued to climb and it remains very high. But look at what's, what's happened to the employment share in manufacturing. So uh, even when you get, manage to experience output reindustrialization, uh, it's very, very unlikely that you will experience employment industrialization. We see this actually happening today in the United States. Um, so if you look at um, you know, what's happening to as a result of CHIPS and the IRA, so this concerted efforts at rebuilding industrial activity in, in the United States, whether it's semiconductors, advanced manufacturing, or, 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 or batteries or electric vehicles, these are actually very, very capital and skill intensive industries. So what you get is actually, you know, after 2020-22, you get significant increase in investment in manufacturing, if you look closely at manufacturing output, you can convince yourself that even manufacturing output in the United States has bounced back up. But you know, employment is steadily and unhappily uh, trending downwards. There's no effect uh, on employment that you can actually see. And I'm afraid that's going to be the, 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 um, the general picture that we, on, on, with respect to the objective of creating good jobs in manufacturing, and that sort of manufacturing is where we're supposed to have those good jobs being created under CHIPS and IRA. That's simply not going to happen. Okay, so the bottom line diagnosis of the problem uh, is that you know, um, the central problem of our, the inability of our labor markets to create sufficient productive jobs um, will not be addressed as a byproduct um, of sort of our traditional approach to industrial policies or the approach that has been taken in the United States right now. And therefore we need an industrial policy that's going to put job creation uh, front and center. Um, and that is going to have a certain element. It's going to focus on the demand side of labor markets 
in addition to the supply. So I'm not saying let's ignore skills, investment, and training, but it'll have to focus at least as much on the demand side, that is creating the positions, the firms uh, that are offering productive employment opportunities. It's going to be focusing mostly on services uh, and in manufacturing. And higher productivity is going to be the sine qua non uh, for uh, being able to offer um, to um, those, those jobs in addition of, to you know, standard um, uh, 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 protections in labor markets and, and labor market institutions. Okay, so if CHIPS and IRA in the US is not a good model, uh, what might be a good model? It's actually something that very few people have heard of, and it was in um, the first package that the Biden administration passed. It was the American Recovery Program. Uh, and hidden there, and it's hidden because it's actually tiny, um, hidden there uh, was a, something called a um, good jobs challenge. Not time. <laughs> yeah, and we're side. allowed to have different but, scales. Yeah, fine. well, right. But you need to sort of, you know, <laughs> yeah. take put in the in the context that you know, chip subsidies are of the order of several tens of billions uh, of dollars, and the IRA itself, when you put in the tax credits, um, really is going to be running uh, in the latest estimates into hundreds of billions of dollars, um, and and uh, and so five hundred million dollars is really, really, um, you know, uh, tiny. Uh, but the concept itself is what I really, um, you know, find very appealing, and I think it's it, it's it's kind of a, it's it's a very different approach of how to do this. And the idea for the uh, these um, uh, um, uh, this uh, good jobs challenge, um, together with another one that I think is also five hundred million dollars, which was a regional uh, challenge, that is the idea to part to incentivize through resources at the federal or national level to, to incentivize the creation or the strengthening of local cross-sectoral partnerships um, with the idea of developing local economic development strategies that bring together uh, worker training, skills formation, uh, entrepreneurial assistance, um, financial um, uh, and, and, and credit assistance, business plan assistance. So in other words, various tools of business development as well as skills investment around a kind of a concerted strategy. And the idea was that these local uh, coalitions would then bid for these national uh, um, uh, resources. And then they have, uh, and, and, the, the, and the national resources are both an enabler uh, for these plans to be carried out, but they're also kind of a of a of a carrot to um, to incentivize the creation of these uh, cross-sectoral um, uh, coalitions as well, where where they did not exist. Now, of course, because the problem is you know because the incentive or the carrot was so so tiny, I don't think it will it will do much. But I think it got the basic. Uh, problem right. I mean the basic approach right. That that many of these problems, as in the UK, are have a very sort of local or regional dimension. It's not going to be solved by action at the federal or the national level, um, even though that might be the framing legislation or the framing approach might come from the, from the top. You need in instruments to incentivize what has to be cross-sectoral partnerships that will bring together, which two silos which really operate quite independently uh, in the United States, one of which is skills training and workforce uh, development, and the other is really 
business and entrepreneurship attraction and development. They literally, and the only place where it works is when you have very entrepreneurial uh, government leaders or entrepreneurial sort of private sector leaders that essentially provide the act of coordinating this. Um, okay, um, so this will, I'm going to run through the rest of my slides. How long have I talked now? Oh, it's very speedy so far. Um, how much do I, do I oh, 10 minutes? Yeah, okay, that'll be, that's fine, that'll be great. Um, so, um, so how will, you know, sort of, you know, differ um, from the st standard ways in which we talk about um, uh, industrial policy? And of course, is this is, you real, I, I'm saying industrial policy, but you realize I'm not talking about industry anymore, right? And that's one of the things about terminology. Um, so the traditional approach really focuses a lot on subsidies and tax incentives. So CHIPS and IRA are based on these subsidies and tax incentives. Um, and, 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 and the idea is um, that you're trying to internalize externalities and the economic rationale is clear. But when you look at actually the, the, the real kind of problems that you're trying to solve when you're addressing these good jobs uh, problems, it's really uh, much more complicated than simply you know, um, internalizing a well-calibrated or, or well-quantified externality. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of discovery um, that needs to take place. So you need a much closer sort of iterative relationship uh, between the various um, uh, 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 stakeholders. So rather than emphasizing subsidies, tax incentives, direct financial incentives, um, the, 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 this approach would actually um, focus on providing a portfolio or a variety of public inputs, uh, whether it's training, business services, um, uh, greenfield um, land, uh, regulatory forbearance, technology assistance, whatever um, is needed. In a way, that's going to be precisely customized to the, to the needs um, of, of, of the users. Um, and uh, so I think here are some examples uh, from, from, from Britain, I think, um, where if you try to sort of see is how much of this is taking place, uh, in the U.S., this takes place quite haphazardly in localities that have got their act together. Um, I didn't quite see um, uh, sort of obviously um, uh, there, there might be some cities where this is being done better than others. Um, uh, um, but some of the new initiatives, for example, the new, these investment zones um, uh, are supposed to focus explicitly on these local efforts and these cross-sectoral partnerships. Uh, but they do not have good jobs as a, as a clear focus on sort of what is it that we're trying to do. Uh, the, this is, I guess, the Agency for Research and, in, no, what is it, the uh, Research and Investment Ag uh, Agency. Uh, Innovation. We're going to come Research, up. invention. Actually, it's, it is invention. Somebody I, I, must I, I think we should move All right. on. So it, it's, uh, you're showing me up. <laughs> People are getting nervous with the audience that we're going to ask them next. <laughs> <laughs> but that also, I think, is, is a kind of uh, potentially um, uh, yeah. doesn't emphasize. Um, so uh, governance, uh, I think we need to think somewhat differently. So again, you know, sort of economists' uh, idea of how you carry out you know, industrial policy is a kind of a top-down approach where, in fact, you explicitly keep the firms and the recipients of public assistance at bay because if you actually interact with them, you're going to be, the idea is you would be gamed 
um, and, uh, and, and, and firms would, you know, would be um, successfully seeking grants. Uh, but in fact, uh, because um, these, the problems you're trying to solve are complex and there's a lot of information that needs to be revealed about um, where the constraints are, how things are working and so forth, and often the firms that are going to be employing people have much better information than uh, the agencies that are uh, providing the assistance and therefore you need a relationship that's not going to be top down, it's going to be much more one of collaboration and iteration uh, where sort of there's a process of, of, of goal setting and discovering what the missing public inputs are, uh, coordination extremely important, conditionality is soft rather than hard because doing hard conditionality is very difficult when there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, uh, and, and so you don't punish recipients, un you punish recipients only when there is, they're clearly acting in bad faith, um, you know, basically taking the resources and not doing anything. Um, and I think these kinds of, of, of practices uh, already exist, um, both at the um, successful sort of local partnerships and in a variety of settings in the United States, but also very significantly at the national level when you look at uh, agencies like DARPA or the various, you know, copies in other parts of, of, of the U.S. Uh, innovation space that actually ARIA uh, is meant to copy. Uh, that actually is precisely the operating mode for how this operates. Um, what's targeted would be different, of course, as for reasons that I've already stated. So the traditional approach tends to focus on manufacturing, on big firms, um, uh, sort of these national champions that are sort of the most productive segments of the economy to make sure they remain competitive on global markets. Whereas I think when you think about where the jobs are going to be, they're going to be mostly in services, they're going to be created mostly firms of a smaller size than your large national champions, so SMEs is going to be um, a big part. There will tend to be the medium productivity activities in the economy because they're not the most um, you know, productive but you know, also not very much job generating uh, firms. Uh, this is where the jobs for the least skills are likely to come from, so that's why you need to target these kinds of activities. Tradable services in Britain, um, I think, are going to be uh, very important. There's a couple of very nice studies that the Resolution Foundation um, has done on um, many of, maybe some of the authors are, are, are here, on Manchester and, and Birmingham, which really makes a very strong case. So, you know, basically says manufacturing is not going to come back, that's not where this serve, but these tradable services are very important. I'm not entirely convinced by these reports that we will not have to pay a lot of attention uh, to other um, sort of local services as well. Uh, which are sort of, you know, industries like care, retail, education. And the reason for that is that these are still the, where the bulk of the jobs are going to be created in the future. And I think if you focus only on the tradable services, on accounting and IT and, and, uh, and, and finance, uh, you know, those are going to be the, you know, their, their ability to create jobs for the vast majority of the British labor force is really limited. So again, you run into this problem, or are you creating jobs for the you know, top 10% uh, of, the, of the workforce, the top 15%, and where will the, you know, you know, where will the, the productive jobs for the rest come from? So I don't think you can avoid just quantitatively uh, this problem of addressing this. 
Now, we don't know how to address productivity issues uh, in these kinds of sectors, uh, but we have you know, some um, kind of, of ideas that even where sort of technologies are concerned, uh, that we know that, that tech firms tend to have a variety of, of um, you know, technological possibilities, some of whom are directed at replacing workers, and some of them are, could be focused or targeted on, on, on making workers actually both more productive, but without necessarily diminishing demand for them because they multiply the number of tasks these workers can do. So the, 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 the key to creating jobs that are both more jobs and more productive jobs in these service industries is to find technologies that are going to increase the tasks uh, that, peop that, that people can do. Um, and that you know, happens through um, by essentially uh, using new technologies that increase the possibilities of providing these services uh, in a way that's much more customized to different groups of customers. So education, so you know, targeting education according to the different learning needs or learning styles of different subgroups of workers. Um, you know, that is, is one way that, that you can make education both services both more productive without necessarily increasing, lower, you know, reducing the demand for teachers because uh, they are a wider range of tasks that they can perform. That obviously in, in care, in, in, in medical services, also in retail, there are some sort of business school type case studies on all of these things. So these are things that already exist. The problem is that we have, because you know, we don't take the direction of technological change as something that is actually something in part we can control, we haven't spent a lot of time thinking about these issues. Like ARIA isn't thinking about this, even though it's investing in innovation technologies, but doesn't necessarily, you know, uh, from what I understand, going to focus on how can we make technologies serve people, rather than you know, let technology go in any direction that firms and innovators want, and then worry about what the implications for labor markets are. Um, okay, so, um, so I mean, the basic, you know, so, you know, so, so the basic quid pro quo that this kind of approach to industrial policy implies for for firms uh, is is a kind of a you know, this this is putting in the in the in the in terms of a kind of a social contract that firms um, need a variety of public services and inputs and um, and 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 those um, you know go all the way from you know skilled workforce to uh, business services um, the ecosystem basically that that don't necessarily uh, develop on their own and then governments in turn need firms to internalize uh, these good jobs externalities, sort of what happens to communities when good jobs disappear and the consequences of the erosion of, of the middle class. So that's ultimately the kind of, of quid pro quo, the social contract that the type of, of um, industrial policy I'm, I'm describing is meant to operationalize. Okay. So um, I, this is just a summary of what's, I think, the this new type of industrial policy uh, requires compared to sort of uh, standard ways of thinking about industrial policy. But let me just end here by, um, um, by just summarizing um, the key points, um, which is that you know, we are really in a kind of a different world. I mean, we knew in the past 
how to create middle-class societies that went through, you know, industrialization, manufacturing, you know, um, then workers organizing, getting, you know, a variety of rights and, and good labor market institutions and so forth. But we're obviously left that world, world behind uh, and we haven't fully confronted um, the realities of um, the requirements of that new world um, and in particular that productivity dissemination of productive employment uh, in uh, services is going to be the key and that is going to require policies to work on both sides of the labor market it's not simply you know uh, um, skills and training it's also about the demand side creating good firms because ultimately good jobs can only be um, uh, offered by by good firms and this is really, in the end, sort of my, my dilemma, and I think our societal conundrum is that it leaves us with a very kind of a difficult and un unprecedented uh, kind of an approach that has elements of industrial policy because it is targeting uh, you know, productive structural change in the way that industrial policy traditionally has, but with very different targets, with very different governance arrangements, with very different... Um, uh, uh, priorities, and um, but that's what I think we need to spend a lot more time uh, thinking about it. So, uh, if I've done, if I've managed to get you to think that this is a real problem that's worth spending a little bit of your time, then I've succeeded. Thank you. Great, thank you, Danny. Very good. The, um, there was lots in there, the, um, and that's basically versions of what we've been being told by Danny for the last uh, two years when he's been encouraging us to one focus on the big picture of what you're trying to achieve, and then two, be hard-headed about what are the actual plausible things that would help you achieve it. Because often people say, oh, we need this really big change for our economy, and then they say, and it's really easy to do. We just do this, or we just do that, and it'll be fine. And, they, um, and as you just heard, that is not what Danny has been encouraging. Now, I think for a bit of a discussion, we should dig into a few elements of that. So uh, first of all, on the, um, what's the problem we're trying to solve, slash what is the goal? of an economic strategy, then a bit on the things that you have triaged out as not the answer, um, because that's when everyone's got very upset. So we should cover off the people that are upset. They, um, uh, and then let's do the answer. Like, what are we, what are we actually saying? How would this actually work? Um, uh, are there, let's get into some of this tension between different kinds of services there. They, um, and as, as I said at the beginning, if you want to Add your questions, which I'll bring in as we go through that. It's hashtag good jobs on Slido, so definitely do that. So on the problem, so, so you set the problem very much up as how do we get a good jobs economy? And the definition of good jobs is job, it's not just about pay, but it's jobs that will sustain a middle class lifestyle, is our, which, which is an incomes focused way of thinking about um, good jobs. So my first question is, is how different is that from a, you just need it, you can't have as unequal a, society, a country? How much is this, you're using the words good jobs because it stops some neoliberals frothing, but basically yeah. you just want lower inequality. I don't think inequality depends, depends on how you measure inequality, but I think what I'm, what I'm focusing on is, is much more um, sort of, you know, I'm, I'm it's much more the middle class and the lower middle class than the very bottom. I mean, I think you know that we're not going to do away with the um, um, income supports and the transfers and the welfare state, which is absolutely critical for people at the very bottom. Uh, but I think many welfare states have um, 
have run the course. That's not true for the United States because the welfare state is still very thin, but I would say certainly for Europe, Western Europe, that we were, the welfare state can no longer do, which is to sort of prop up the, wealth, prop up the middle class. Um, and for that, you need to have you know jobs for the middle class and the lower and then and then career paths that you know basically people can move into the middle class, um, and and so it is it is a different focus than uh, both focus on inequality and and alternatively focus on poverty reduction. So it is it is different in that way, and I think it's explicitly focused on jobs because unlike other mechanisms of you know, um, redistribution or income support and family support and so forth. This says that, look, you know, it's not the same just giving people money versus giving the kind of dignity and autonomy that having a job. And I think so that focus is also, you know, just make people productive, not just. So I think, so there are certain elements in that that I think, um, and the final thing I would say is if you look at you know, this is a more of a utilitarian, I mean, more of a, you know, an argument that may be a little bit off the topic. But if you look at what has driven the rise of right-wing authoritarian populism, it's not inequality per se, but um, it's much more sort of the, you know, the erosion of the lower middle class and the jobs that sustained uh, the lower middle class and the middle class. So in terms of, in, in, you know, so... Assuming that you were doing fine for the very bottom, maybe Europe was doing that, the United States much less so. But you know, having a better anti-poverty program in the United States would not have solved the rise of Trump. Um, and, and so they, that, again, I think is, is why this focuses a little bit. Okay, so, yeah, that makes sense. So it's, a, it's not that we don't care about inequality, it's that we are focused on solving a particular bit of it, and our route to solving it is pre-distribution focused rather than redistribution. That's yeah. That's very. I, I should. I could have. You should have. Could have said that, and I would have. Would have saved up. Okay, if I do that, it's going to get really. Awkward. Yeah. Okay. Like, that's, it's not going to be a conversation then, Danny. Okay. The, the, um, like the. Um, I think they'd rather you told them what you think than <laughs> I'll just give it a summary. Right. Okay. Here's another challenge to the. Um, to the kind of what are we about trying to do, which is, so so, the good jobs anxiety. So on the problem rather than on the solution for a second is often put like that, this. It's people who say, I grew up in this place. When I was a kid, someone doing job X, insert the job, so coal mining, if they're coming from bits of South Yorkshire or um, uh, you know, wider manufacturing jobs, say like shipbuilding in bits of Glasgow, that brought status and income for my family. And that has gone and that's the problem. The, um, that's often well, that's the emotion at least underpinning it, yep. even if it's not the it's definitely not the entirety. The, um, now the challenge for that is that is that isn't always a national story. That's a story about some places, and it's a story about some people. I.e., those were a subset of jobs done by men in a certain era in certain parts of the country. So, how much is this story just that story, or how much is it more than that story? On the problem side, obviously on the solution side, it's not just about white men in some bits of the country. Yeah, I mean, I think traditionally, I mean, there is a, there is a, there is some rationale to the nostalgia because, I mean, the presence of those jobs was associated with, you know, a certain predictability of income, a sense of community, mm -hmm. you know, a sense of, you know, um, 
you know, that's who your camaraderie and who your circle was. And, and obviously, we're not going back um, to that. And, and, and so we, we I, I think what are, what but, but that doesn't mean that what gave meaning to people's lives therefore you know that you know we should completely you know dismiss that yeah. and i think um you know i don't think you know coal mining jobs or most manufacturing jobs are pleasant jobs right i mean it's like you know it's just that people died very young yeah i mean it's it's you know so that's it's crazy i mean it's you know you working if you if were working retail today, you know, you're not getting poisoned. And, you know, so if, if as long as your boss treats you well, you have flexible, you know, um, schedule, uh, you have some possibilities of, of, of personal development and so forth. Those would be almost infinitely better jobs um, than, than working as a, in, in, in an assembly line or working, working in a mine. So we should be doing a lot better. Um, Okay, well, last nudge on that point, which is, so you know, you showed us the, um, uh, what's usually called the hollowing out chart of the occupational spectrum. So some jobs growth at the bottom, uh, some jobs growth at the top, and then shrinking of what we used to have called middle earning jobs, administrative support in large companies, um, for example, which is, which in the UK is largely a like 20th century phenomenon. So we haven't seen lots of that since. But if you draw the same chart, but just draw it for women, then what you basically have is decade after decade of improvement yeah. it's all occupational upgrading yeah. there is no there is no destruction yeah. of good jobs yeah. so do you do you think we worry at all that are we are male dominated in the like what the world no, is no but i i think i think you're you're really making a very good point that that i think i mean you know what's happened in the labor markets for for women in in the us and in europe in the last uh, few decades, I mean, I think it's overall an incredibly important success story, and I, I, th I don't think we should, um, you know, de-emphasize that at all. Um, and and you know, that that leaves us with the problem of men. Uh, you know, uh, it, so well, the rate of change problem is men. You've still got yeah. a levels problem in terms of who's doing the low-paid jobs. Being that is that is true. Like the that change is, is true. Men, yeah. That is true. The, um, it's definitely noticeable in the UK. That is like, true. All the growth in the UK in low-paid work yeah. is in in low-paid part-time work is amongst yeah. men, and yeah. when and that is when we started talking about yeah. the problems of low-paid yeah. part-time work yeah. in the UK. But but there, I mean, there's I mean there's but there is a sense in which um, there are very large again in certainly in the US there are very large segments of the labour force that sort of dominated by very low pay, very bad job. I mean, the the you know epitome of a bad job in the United States is you know um, you know unregulated long term care, uh, which is dominated by uh, you know women yeah. um, and being paid extremely low uh, and living extremely difficult um, uh, jobs, and, and so. So there's a, I mean, that's certainly, it would be, you know, a huge segment that is crying out for, for improvement. Great. Let's, let's touch on not the answer stuff. As we go through, I think it's worth, like, so we should do that. Why might people not agree? So your big one, so I think your two enemies are manufacturing. <laughs> not enemies is too strong. Because I think in some ways we, you'd like that to be, it's a kind of realism rather than a kind of dismissive. It's like it's not going to happen, yeah. rather than we don't want it to happen. Or 
Yeah, I mean, one of the papers that I've written that I'm most proud of is, is a paper called Unconventional, Unconditional Convergence in Manufacturing, which, which at least to me made me understand uh, why sort of industrialization was so important for economic growth in low and middle income countries. Um, and so, and then you know, five years later, here I am basically telling you know, all the countries in the world that they should forget about manufacturing. So, so it's not because, I mean, I, I don't think manufacturing- Some, some of your best friends are manufacturers. Is, is, yeah, and, 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 and I, th I think again, you know, industri the industrial economy is what has created liberal democracy too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not just economics, uh, it's also our political economy is based uh, you know, on, on, on a particular model of, of development. I think the reason that we're getting these autocrats in so many different parts of the world is because you know, the primary mode of mobilization in those countries becomes very personal, personalistic, patron-client based, because you don't have this class-based mobilization that we think of normally in, 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 in strongly industrializing societies. So the fact that manufacturing isn't doing its job or has declined um, tremendously is a huge, huge problem. Um, and, but we just have to face up to, okay, so what is it that we're going to do about it? Do you think, so lots of people obviously don't agree with that. The question, and we'll come back to Biden in a second, but um, uh, and obviously in some, we're talking here about the level of the economic strategy for the country as a whole. Obviously for some individual places, you will always have manufacturing which is the center of your, like Derby in the UK, manufacturing is going to be the center of the local economic strategy or uh, chemicals in Cheshire. We're not gonna replace like those industries. If they go, probably nothing. It's not like service industries are gonna spring up in those smaller, um, uh, places, but for the country as a whole, we're really talking about the counter arguments would be generally um, uh, look, you want a product, you want high productivity. On average, manufacturing has higher productivity growth, not levels, growth than lots of the service industries you're talking about. So even if it's hard and we've got to push water uphill to grow it, we should be growing it. What do you say to those people when they come knocking? I'm just saying. I wish you. I hope you're right, and I'm wrong. I mean uh, that it is feasible strategy. Very reasonable. I mean, I no, no. I mean, I literally, you know, every month I go to the, you know, the the Fred database and look at what has happened when the new data comes monthly. The employment and the chart I showed you is the latest one that shows that manufacturing employment as a share of labor force is still ticking down. Nothing has changed there, even though, as you, you know, you see these manufacturing construction indices heading up, manufacturing output heading up. I, you know, you look at these, you know, these, you know, um, you know, the, I, I just read Tesla is putting up this gigafactory in Mexico um, that's going to manufacture um, uh, electric vehicles. It's a $5 billion factory. And it's, it's going to create five thousand jobs, um, and and so it, it's you know it, it's when you look at the numbers, it's just not I mean commensurate with what our needs are in terms of job creation. Um, so you're left with two possibilities. One is you know is you say okay then it's got to be maybe manufacturing is the most productive part of the economy or is the most productively dynamic part, and then you're You've, you've, you're really going down a kind of trickle-down story, right? So our vision of the economy is that we're going to get productivity at the very top and we'll expect it to trickle down. The problem is that 
as you well know, what has been happening also in all our economies is that you know the gap between the firms that are doing the best and the firms that are lagging even within the same industries is also growing. So th that process of trickling down of what the most productive firms are doing to the less productive firms, even within the same industries, that's becoming harder and harder. So there's no way that we're going to solve this problem if we don't push some of the bottom and the middle up um, and instead of just focusing on, on the top. So again, it's, I end up there because by a process of elimination. I wish we could do the easy stuff and that would work. Easy, comparatively, because we've done it before. But I just don't see, again, I mean, some of my best friends, best friends do work in the Biden administration, and, uh, and I hope that they end up being right, um, and they justifiably are touting the, you know, the, you know, the rebooting of, of, of manufacturing in, in, in the U.S. But I just am very worried that, you know, we're saying that, you know, through this strategy, not only do we get, you know, our geopolitical you know, independence and semiconductors from China, we get the green transition, which both of them might be important objectives in and of them. And on top, we're going to get good jobs. No, I think that's going to you require its own instrument. Right, very good. Let's, well, let's, let's do the other two then. So you, you touched on one, there's an overlap here between manufacturing, but there's the, on the, uh, the Biden story is very different. You've given us some of it, so it's, it is manufacturing focused. The, um, not in practice as much as it is rhetorically, but rhetorically very manufacturing focused, but lots of the subsidies are definitely manufacturing um, focused. It's subsidy focused, not just some of them via tax credits, but it's subsidy focused. Um, and it's definitely in the business of tagging good jobs onto the end of a... Now, you've answered most of why you don't agree with bits of that. It, they may be desirable for other reasons. Saving the planet is quite important, but they might not deliver those objectives. But let's just do a different one, which is more relevant to the UK debate, where they're not going to... No one's proposing to do anything quite as exciting as that, which is green jobs generally. So leave manufacturing aside for a second. The argument here is, from a, from a centre-left position, would be the big thing that's different about our economic strategy is that it puts green centre stage. That's going to give us higher productivity, will give us some more manufacturing jobs, um, lots of other good jobs, they would say home insulation, and, and, and this is how we get to a cleaner, greener, but also richer economy. The, um, can't we just do that instead? Um, it, again, it would be wonderful if, um, if that there was evidence that um, the green transition is a source of... So polite. Um, <laughs> so polite. Um, is it, is They're it, not here, it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> Some so, of them are, actually. Um, <laughs> Some of our elected representatives. Yeah, I mean, no, I think we need to keep have an open mind. I mean, I think it's possible that, you know, I was talking in my presentation on how sort of technological trajectories are not necessarily predetermined and, and that one might imagine more, you know, job creating, more job in, intensive paths, even for the green transition. Um, but, um, but a lot of the green is, is really either very capital intensive stuff or the labor, you know, generation comes, you know, it's, it's you know, you're building the, you know, the, um, the, the wind farms or you're building the solar farms, but once they're built, basically you're not employing any people or the refurbishing is going to take a lot of employment, but that's just, again, it's an, it's an upfront investment. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think probably the best that we can 
hope from the green transition is that on net it's not going to be job destroying. Um, but I, I don't just see the evidence that it's it's on net it's going to be a source of good jobs. Yeah, lots of people are crying inside as they go around. They, um, not least because we're I think because we're talking. I have, about a, I have an impression, Torsten, that you're using me for for your purposes. I don't have any. Right? I have no ulterior motives. Actually, I'm a totally neutral. For the purposes of tonight, I have no views. This is just like totally <laughs> neutral investigation of your thoughts for the benefit of the audience. That's what's going on. Uh, right. Let's do the big thing. And here we're going to disagree a bit and rather prove that um, uh, I'm not just being neutral. So, um, so one of the big judgments in your argument about what a strategy should be. So we've got to, it, it is the service sector is going to provide the jobs and the bulk of the productivity. We like to keep these bits of the high value manufacturing as well, but they are minorities. So that's what we want to do. And your then strong part of the argument is the same parts of the service sector need to do both. They need to do the jobs and the productivity. That we mustn't, we mustn't have like some bits of the service sector delivering the productivity and some other bits providing the good jobs. The, um, and so I just want to, and that is a big, and that's an objective. You're, it's almost like a prior. That's how. That's important. That that's how we do it. So, and that is a. And I just want to stress test that on the plausibility and the desirability of that, because an alternative strategy is yes, the economy is going to be service um, dominated. That service sector as a whole does need to drive higher productivity for the country as a whole, and it needs to provide good jobs for a large number of people. Both are really important objectives. But we should be clear about that different parts of the sector are providing different parts of that strategy. Um, uh, so let's just split that this up into two. Let's do the large employing parts, because the large employing parts of the service economy. So you've named some of them care, hospitality, re retail, leisure warehousing increasingly um, these are the people these are the bits that are employing like very large proportions of our workforce so one answer which is your one is we need to raise the productivity in those sectors because that's how those sectors will have better jobs I think there's two challenges to that one is the plausibility of getting significant productivity growth obviously everyone wants as much as we can have right within reason um, but the plausibility of a lot of the productivity growth coming in those sectors and then we should come on to the desirability, where there are some trade-offs. But on the plausibility, how confident are you that that can happen in a way that drives aggregate? Because your, your second chart was UK productivity flatlining, wages flat for everybody. Like We want some good jobs, but we also need some living standards growth because people can't afford to pay for their energy bills and their imported food right now. So how plausible is it that is where most of the productivity growth comes from? How, how good can hairdressers get? Or, or orchestra conductors. Or orchestra conductors. Yeah, no. I, they, clearly, there are there will be some areas where this um, there might be limit. Although with hairdressers, you might imagine a certain degree of, of task multiplication and, and much more customization of you know sort of a personal services there too. But again, no. Um, the so again, let's let's keep the maybe I'm 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 jumping ahead to some later part of your question um, I, I'm, I'm ending up with the need to raise productivity um, in those sort of large labor absorbing sectors by process of of elimination 
and so the so if you could do the accounting for me, and this in fact this is what I've been pushing from the very first, and when I accept the Economy 2030 inquiry, should you know articulate a vision of what the British economy would look like um, that is both more inclusive and more productive and more prosperous. What does that would look like? Where would people actually be working with? And is that plausible? So if if you can draw for me a picture that says, look, you know because all the high productivity jobs are going to be things like in banking, in finance, in engineering, in IT, you know, sort of, you know, those kinds of, or, or creative industries, you know, yeah. like the rock bands and, and movie directors and oh, actors and actresses, <laughs> and, and right, which, you know, Britain is obviously very good at, um, but how much of the workforce are you going to be employed in those sectors? And the skill requirements in working in high-end finance or software and IT, are they compatible with any existing path of you know, skills investment education that this economy is going to? If you do that calculation and says, look, you know, we can create a middle class out of that because then I'm, I will be very happy and I will say this is a plausible strategy. My guess is that that is not plausible and that that is another version of the trickle-down society where now we've replaced sort of high-end you know, manufacturing uh, with, you know, high-end skill-intensive services, uh, but the bulk of the labor force is still essentially operating in very low productivity. So that's the background to where, where I end. That's good. And then, and then, okay, but is there any, any reason to be optimistic that there is something we can do? Maybe the best we can do is have better redistribution and, and work, you know, hope that we can have a trickle-down society work better than, than it has in the past. I mean, I think my reason for a certain degree of optimism is that, you know, when you talk to, to you know, people, you know, operations management in productions and, and sort of in business consulting who know sort of the particulars about these kinds of things, you know, there's no shortage of ideas, even within our existing technological envelope, of how things can be done that would increase productivity for the ordinary worker, whether it's in retail, whether it's in care, whether it's in education. It's just that our role ethos of how we think about technology and where our priorities ought to be doesn't look at those what ought to be done through those angles. So you like, you know, for, you know, I, I tell the story about, you know, um, you know, Elon Musk's uh, factory for, you know, uh, Tesla Model 3. I mean, his target was basically to create a factory that would be completely without people, right? There would be these huge robots in there and you couldn't even have people operating anywhere near, it would be dangerous. All the raw material would be coming in through one door and the assembled vehicles would come out, you know, the other side. And, and Tesla almost failed because this vision turned out to be, you know, um, uh, uh, impossible. And Musk actually had to create another factory outside the main factory with real people um, doing the job. Otherwise, Model 3 would not be coming online, um, you know, and, and, and Tesla would literally have failed. And, and that's when he basically made the, you know, the statement like, I've... I've underestimated the need for humans or something along those lines. Is that lines. why he's trying to get everybody uh, off Twitter? <laughs> yeah. Trying to get the humans out of Twitter. That's what he's doing. Um, uh, but but, okay. but I, I'm giving that story as an example of how the ethos of how you think about, you know, 
what technological progress is. It's really has been much more about automation, <laughs> replacing people with machines. And it's the job of other people to think about, you know, where the good jobs are yeah. going to come from, how will they live, what will their communities look like. I think we need to find ways of bringing that ethos back into sort of our, our, our thinking about innovation and technology. And even within our existing technological frontier, we can do much better if we align incentives better. For example, I mean, that the fact that we, you know, we incentivize automation through all kinds of tax credits, while we tax labor because of all the, you know, withholding and the things. You know, there's a you know, huge set of incentives built right into our existing tax structure. Uh, that de-emphasizes investment in in, in labor-creating um, uh, technologies. So, you know, given that we've tried so little and everything that we're doing goes in the opposite direction, I mean, it's just, you know, by the theory of increasing, you know, declining marginal product, given that, you know, we've have invested so little, you know, the marginal return to investing a little bit in thinking in this way might should be relatively large. Very good. The, um, now, one of the ways that's really helpful about how you think is this kind of triaging and closing off routes as a way of get, making progress. The, um, um, so let's try, I was going to try and reopen a closed off path and see whether, whether it is plausible. And you, so this is the path of we can have better jobs in the kind of sectors that are large employers than we have now, even if those sectors don't drive large amounts of the productivity growth okay the, um, so that is the ones we've talked about before and the first thing to say is why it, would i want to think about that route being available the first is if you if you if you look at so in the uk we've had very big increases in the minimum wage over the last 20 years yeah introduced it slow ramp up then very fast ramp up so the fastest pay growth for 20 years has been amongst lower earners consistently every year for 20 years them is twice as fast as the average in the top over those 20 years on hourly pay. Now, in ex exactly over that period, if you look at job satisfaction surveys, it is the lowest earners are the only people whose job satisfaction has come down. Like middle higher earners will always have lower because they're all stressed, because you're all coming to Resolution Foundation events and getting stressed. But like, but the but their job, but, but the people lower earners in the 90s had the highest job satisfaction, and they've now lost all of that job satisfaction premium. And if you dig into why intensification of the work is high up the list. The other one is meeting customers, because you're all horrible. But intensification, which is one route to productivity growth in those sectors that are very labor intensive, is really high. And that makes us a bit nervous about putting all the productivity growth eggs in those baskets, which is it may not be pleasant for workers unless we get the absolute brilliant change. So I'll give you an example. The use of technology in uh, supermarkets, the UK is low productivity generally, but actually has pretty highly productive supermarkets, has become more stressful for the workers. Now, obviously, we could direct the technology differently, but it's definitely a risk from that. So that's the like reason to think harder. And then the can we reopen a path argument runs through France. So the question is, could you have better jobs, including better pay in lower productivity sectors, in the non-tradable service sectors? And the counter, the answer to no, you can't really, is you'll end up with unemployment. If you try and improve, if you regulate for the quality of those jobs too far, you'll end up like France, higher unemployment. The, um, the counter argument is we've ramped up the minimum wage lots, so have others, the Kiwis, um, and it hasn't affected employment. Probably it's slowed employment growth in those sectors relative to the rest of the economy, but overall it hasn't affected employment. 
basically because the labour market's got enough power in it that we can make some choices about the quality of these jobs, particularly in the non-trade or sectors where there's no international pressure on the sectors. And so maybe we can just make different choices so long as we don't accidentally get French insider-outsider problems and the rest, not end up with high employment, suck, get some productivity growth largely in some tradable sectors that won't employ loads of people as a share of the economy. We'd like them to employ more, but they won't employ loads. And then we can get our hairdressers to be paid more by basically regulating that they get paid more, even if the market doesn't deliver it, which it should in time. And so maybe there is a, there is a without using the words trickle-down model, but there is a model which grows the productivity of the economy as a whole. Uh, that benefit goes through to everyone because the hairdressers are paid by people who are earning high wages and more productive, and because of the labour market, has some competitiveness, and we have more choice about the good jobs. Because a counter-argument to this whole discussion can be we equate good work with productive tradable work and we've just got to stop from that or not your discussion the debate right it's like in the old days we built this stuff and we sold it around the world and that is what good jobs look like and now we're like the version of that now is you've got some lawyers and bankers they're selling services around the world that's the only kind of good work and alternatives to say we don't, good work isn't just about productivity and about whether it's tradable status is about what we choose it to be we're going to give status to care workers was a good example it's not going to be massively more productive, but we can choose. I mean, we can choose the level of pay in the care sector in the UK because we basically nationalised it the, um, because we're too scared to tell people to sell their homes to pay for it. The, um, so can't we do that? And, there's a, and the a labour market's imperfect enough. There's enough labour market power that we can screw some good work out of those sectors. What do you reckon? Can we reopen that path or does France close it off? Um, yeah, so I think, it, it, I mean, it sounds like, you know, Britain had you know, its version of the, the France problem, which is that, you know, the, the, the cost of the strategy was borne not in high unemployment, but in turn, but um, by, um, by the creation of very unpleasant jobs um, that enabled, um, like, retail firms and others to reap, you know, the surplus um, uh, of, of, of automation with very very little uh, benefits yeah. um, and and so I, I so and and, and I, I suppose the reason that doesn't happen in France is because workers you know through sectoral bargains and so oh, forth yeah. have, have have more you know power and and, and they wouldn't have yeah. it and here you know they didn't have that power so so it seems to me that you know that's you know that's a different version of, of the problem that you're running into now. Um, I, honestly, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm looking away out as much as, as, as you are. So yeah. it's not like I'm, I, you know, but I'd like to see a, 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 an accounting and, and seeing sort of whether that is indeed uh, possible uh, or, or not. Now, now, if if you were a technology pessimist, that is to say that the only way you can get more productivity at that low or lower middle range of jobs is by you know, essentially through very, very unpleasant, you know, repetitive like work, then, then obviously then that, that forecloses my strategy as well. Uh, but my strategy is based very much on the idea that you can make what currently today is relatively low pay um, uh, and low productivity jobs by increasing um, the ability of those workers to provide much more customizable services. Um, and, and, um, and, and, and that's is, 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 is a way to actually sort of 
increased job satisfaction is you know turns workers into sort of more you know sort of uh, you know people are doing um, you know jobs with much greater degree of autonomy and, and, and so forth now again it, it's 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 a hypothesis how much you know that idea can be generalized what are the limits of productivity increasing um, through that but I mean again I'm just saying that that you know it, it's it, that that you know, it, it, we're not sufficiently investing in that. And I think ultimately we do need to have an accounting of, of um, whether it's going to be possible to, um, to focus most of our productivity gains um, at the tradable, tradable end of, of, of services and, and, and deal with the rest more through uh, regulation and mandates and, and collective bargaining. Great. Very good. Right, let's get some questions in the room. I'm going to take three to get Which started. I hope you will do in the uh, in the forthcoming uh, Economy 2030. Um, we are. Fire. Your challenges have been well received and we okay. need to up our game, Danny. Right, let's take a question here, one in the middle and one in the front, and then we'll come to this side of the room. Give us your name, sir. My name is Tim Page and I'm Head of Economic Strategy at Berkshire Local Economic Partner Local Enterprise Partnership. Tim, has Berkshire got an economic strategy? Berkshire does have an economic Phew. strategy. Phew! Right, what's your question? <laughs> But my interest, Danny, is you talked about, I know you've written a lot about institutions, and I wondered, you talked about localism as a, as a source of industrial strategy, and I, I wondered if you thought about the institutions that might be needed in order to drive that forward. We have what are called LEPs, Local Enterprise Partnerships in the UK, that the government are about to stop funding, that replaced regional development agencies. All right, no lobbying, Tim. Also stopped funding. No lobbying. And so we're in a situation where we don't seem to know what institutional settlement we want. And part of the problem is that we don't have local democratic accountability. So government give us a wedge of money and we spend it, but there's no one who holds us accountable. And, and so we have to climb so many hoops in order to get anything done that the bureaucracy weighs us down. And it makes it really difficult to do Great. the job. So I wondered Tim, if you I'm felt about how you felt about Great um, question. The design of local economic. Let's go to the gentleman in front of you. Just pass the mic down. So the role of local economic leadership. Uh, I'm Liam Byrne. I was a member of Gordon Brown's cabinet and I chair the cross-party group on inclusive growth in the House of Commons. So this is a really welcome debate. We definitely need a definition of good work, good jobs and indeed good firms. We lack that today. And what that means is it's really difficult to invest in them and buy from them. So when we were trying to do an index of good employers in Britain, it's actually quite hard to find who the big employers were. And of course, they don't publish the information you need to construct such an index. So definition is a good place to start. But the reason I think it could be valuable is there could be two different strategies that could help with this. So one, here in Britain, we've now got a revolution in pension savings. So the National um, uh, Nest, our auto enrollment pension fund um, provider, will soon have about half a trillion pounds worth of equity investment available. Now, at the moment, it's really difficult if you're a pension saver to invest in firms that aren't poisoning the planet, dodging their taxes, or paying their workers properly. But our polling shows that about two-thirds of pension savers would like to invest in firms that are behaving ethically. Now... If we manage to consolidate our pension industry and indeed harness the power of Nest, there could potentially be a force for mobilising worker savers in investing in good work. The second opportunity, though, is, of course, in many of the sectors that we're talking about here, the taxpayer ultimately is the buyer 
of those services. So if you think about care, if you think about education, those kinds of services where ultimately we're trying to personalise care, education, other services, there could be a way through the power of procurement to actually mobilise, again, hundreds of billions of public spend into good work supplied by good firms. So just two thoughts on levers with a question about definition in the middle. Great. And let's pass come forward two more. The left-hand side of the room, who may or may not be left here, I need to get their act together in a second. Go ahead, sir. Th th thanks very much indeed. Um, Jonathan Haskell, um, Bank of England Imperial College. Very much enjoyed the lecture and very much enjoyed the focus, if I understood it correctly, on industrial policies needing a kind of information base, which we just don't have centrally, and that pushes you towards a sort of decentralised local uh, a sort of strategy. Seems to me that we're, so I'm very sympathetic to that, but there are two big challenges to that. One is maybe just industrial policy just isn't local at all, actually. We've got national transport, we've got national taxation, national planning, national immigration, and so there's just, it can't be localised. That's one challenge, it seems to me. And the second challenge is follows from the, what the gentleman was saying at the back there, which is presumably you need some way of allocating this central money to the decentralised authorities. Well, you're right back to an information problem, which is how do you know whether to give it to the gentleman at the back or you're adjoining, with all due respect, you're adjoining local authority and so forth. So I wonder if you could just say, say something about those two issues. Thanks very much. Those are great questions. So the first and the third. So, Danny, so it, people are listening to your lecture. The back end of it is very much a you're going to need to do more place-based industrial strategy rather than sector-based, which fits in. Uh, in the UK is a problem due to the whole not having a lot of subnational. We're trying to build some now, but not having as much subnational infrastructure. Uh, I suppose the pos you could flip it the other way and say we're really small, so you know, it shouldn't be that hard to do it. But like, you know, should we should we give up because we haven't got the subnational infrastructure, or how do we get Berkshire growing? I can answer that. No, all right, all right, okay, okay, don't do that now. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that. I mean, I, you know, we don't even know necessarily what the, what the binding constraint at the local level is. I mean, it, it is, um, you know, a, a lot of the discussion like this in the second question, if, if, the, if the constraint is finance, you have a good vision, you have ability to coordinate, and you have the supporting institutions of providing skills training, providing entrepreneurial assistance, technology provision, you know the space, the land policy, and so you have all of those instead. But you know, it's it's it, maybe then it's the money that's missing, and you can you can just you know mobilize your pension savings, uh, and and that's that your problem solved. Uh, but often it's just going to be the ability to coordinate, um, and and um, then you need other kinds of institutions that to ensure that you have co local coordination. Uh, of these, um, you know, different, um, including sort of, um, you know, financing streams that might be available, and and so the, one of the things that 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 we're learning from our analysis in the U.S., which is obviously much bigger, and there's a lot of local experimentation, but that gives us a kind of a window, as because there is so much local experimentation, and one of, and 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 one of the interesting thing is that this is almost like, a, you know. It's I don't know what the term is, but it's it is apolitical. Um, that is that when you have when you face local problems of how you're going to move from a previously industrial, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, community to one where you're essentially is going to be more service based, you know, you have you know people from all parts of the political spectrum working together, and you have some Republican, you know, uh, mayors or politicians coming up with, you know, very creative industrial strategies, even though if you know. If they were, 
you know, congressmen or senators, there would be the traditional Republican uh, attitudes on economic policy. So being problem driven, um, you know, essentially in some ways, you know, transcends the, you know, some of the, the local politics. But the question is, who takes on this job of coordinating? Because what we find in, in the United States that the missing ingredient often is not necessarily finance or lack of, you know, education institutions, um, or that, you know, there isn't a small business administration office that's providing help with business plans and things like that is that there is not coordination, that these are all silos that exist on their own, but you need a local leader. It might be you know, you know, the local chamber of commerce, or it could be a local business attraction uh, uh, agency, where you get, you know, as in one case, somebody from Europe that came in and then you know, begins to coordinate everything. Um, and, and, and how you incentivize that is, is, is very difficult. I don't know, I, I don't have an answer to that, but, it, but you need that local capacity seems to me to be extremely important. And the, and the national level can be helpful, you know, pro resources always can help. Um, but I mean, it's, 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 it's a kind of, needs this kind of interaction with, the, with local capacity. The good jobs challenge example that I gave, I like because it's, it's sort of saying, here's a pot of money that's going to be available if you get your act together locally. So it's not going to replace the national budgetary allocations for transport or in other kinds of infrastructure, but it is going to be something on the side that if you want to develop a kind of a local you know, place-based policies that's going to say, we want to build some competency in some of these tradable services that, that um, you know, we were talking about before and, and we need to make some coordinated investments here, our vision, um, and, and that can be evaluated um, uh, in London or sort of national governments and then you know, that it, it provides the kinds of incentive to, to develop such, um, such, such plans. Um, but but it is, it's it's you know but money and finance is not necessarily the the constraint in these things. Um, it's, it's one of the the lessons, at least from from the U.S. experience. That is a big plug for the more devolution in the U.K. argument. Right. Let's have a last question from the lady here. I'm going to do one more online to wrap us up and to give a trigger for Danny's closing comments. Go ahead. Well, thank you. I'm Yuan Yang. I'm from the Financial Times and a big fan of your work, Danny. Um, I've Two questions about the issue, about productivity in the service sector, and the first is going back to Torsten's question of how good can hairdressers get, which is pretty inseparable from the question of how much are we willing to pay for a haircut. And that question seems to be an issue of individual consumption splitting, or individual budget allocation between consumption and savings. And in the UK, savings uh, you know, largely is about housing uh, wealth, and consumption, a large part of that is also about rent. Um, so I was wondering how inseparable is the housing market from that question of uh, of traded services? And the second is for the non-market services like education and, and care, as, um, as, the, pre as uh, the previous speaker mentioned, that's not a question of how much are we willing to uh, buy uh, education for at an individual level. That's the societal level question of how much are we willing to pay doctors and teachers and so on. So if we flip those questions about the, you know, so let's say the supply side of, of, of the jobs market, how do, they, how do they look from that angle? That was a very swift move from haircuts to housing. Yes, so, and, 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 um, so there's, there's a fascinating set of questions there. Um, I mean, I, one of the, you know, I mentioned these, um, these studies that the Resolution Foundation 
made um, that I want to plug, give a plug for again on, on Manchester and, and Birmingham. And one of the th themes that come out both is, is the importance of, is the first the importance of, of just you know, business space. That if you're going to create you know you know you know central business districts that can grow, and and house the expansion of these new tradable services, uh, but then you know secondarily then it becomes very important to provide housing um, at at um, you know sort of that is neither too too close nor too far, but also sort of you know affordable. So uh, when you're thinking about the development of these um, you know, local plans for how are you going to go forward, in inevitably these questions about housing come uh, and, and space um, uh, use comes very much uh, to the fore, which again is why this ends up being a kind of a local problem. Right? That's an issue that can local planning and, and, um, and, and zoning and sort of these things have to be solved at the local level. Um, now on on um, on on education and 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 how much are we willing to pay, you know again you know as you know as has been mentioned I mean I think in 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 Europe and to some extent in the United States that's already being is paid by the public budget so it's you know we're paying it through our taxes, and the question is whether we can manage to increase the productivity of our teachers in the ways that I was suggesting by providing uh, much more um, you know, customized um, services, whether it's education or, or health. And then it would show up uh, in higher productivity for society at large, uh, although it may not be depending on the financing mechanism for education and the care system. Uh, it might be very different parts of society that are seeing the benefits. So for example, in care, it might be that there are sort of you know, lower hospital admission rates because, you know, patients are being taken better care of uh, by, you know, long-term care workers who are spending much more time, uh, you know, providing specialized, customized assistance depending on the on that particular patient's needs. Uh, the, the, the cost savings, the productivity improvements will show up in a very different part uh, of the system. So that's the same for education, that ultimately you'll get you know, higher returns. And I think if you can target education to learning styles and different needs of different segments of students, you'll have a higher productivity um, and, and the returns to education will rise as a whole, uh, although the, those returns might be reaped in very different segments of the economy. Great. Right. We're going to wrap up with one last question from, from the internet. I've tried to work most of the internet questions in as they've come in, but there's one to give you a big picture wrap up Danny which is so this is an argument for what the objective of an economic strategy should be and what the components of it are the people that get to implement economic strategy are economic leaders at a national level they tend to have to get elected at least in the UK and the US for now the, um, so here's the question which is there's elections both we're going to definitely have elections next year possibly overlapping with each other by a matter of weeks but definitely within the same I hope not for everyone's sanity because you will all lose it but hopefully they both happen next year what is the chance of this kind of discussion about what the purpose of economic strategies are and how they get taken forward being centre stage? So will the link between the economic strategy and good jobs feature heavily in the US election campaign? Uh, and what do you think? The, I mean, you've seen some of what the um, political parties here in the UK talk about. So give us your like hope for turning Resolution Foundation lectures and chats into political progress <laughs> well yeah I mean as I, I'm just then just an economist you know <laughs> um, so um, 
I mean, I, I think in the U.S., you know, good jobs very much at the center of the discussion. I mean, I think the Biden administration has made it very much a centerpiece. I mean, my concern is just that you know that um, that there's going to be some disappointment at the end because you know the the instruments that are being used aren't directly targeting uh, good jobs, and I think it's sort of you know it's more of a more of an add-on. Um, I hope the UK is not going to make that mistake because I mean I see that there are elements in labor. I, I know that you know, Shadow Chancellor talks about this a lot. I think it, it's very much you know trying to emulate um, a rather similar strategy um, uh, for for um, uh, uh, um, the UK. And I know that uh, Rachel Reeves has explicitly talked about the importance of a good job strategy. So that's that's all music to my ears, and I think it's it's part of. You know, it's you know. I hope it's going to be part of the uh, the discussion, but I just want to emphasize again. I mean, it's it's like you know, I guess I'm an economist at heart. That you know, there is you know always these trade-offs, and and you know there are no, you know, no free free lunches, right? I mean, it's you're not going to get a good job strategy if you're simply focusing on, you know, revitalizing manufacturing or the or the green transition or the net zero. Those are you know, at least the green transition is absolutely, you know, first order importance. I don't want to um, sound like I'm, I'm, I'm saying that's not important at all. But if you're focusing on, on jobs, you know, it's except for in a very few parts of the country, you know, manufacturing is not going to be it. And you have to think new and creatively about uh, very different kinds of strategies. Very good. That's a good uh, summary with a bit of optimism, but with a warning about being hard-headed and actually doing something. Now, when we started, I said that I owe Danny lots of thanks, but you all just got 90 minutes of chat, so now you all owe him thanks as well. So can everyone give Danny a clap for this evening? Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Danny. Have a good evening, everybody. Off you go. Go and make some good jobs. See you soon. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.